Crystal Martinez Acosta. Today, I will be interviewing Martin Lopez, safety expert. He's ex-military, he served our country, has a lot of expertise in intelligence, safety preparedness, and has a lot of credentials that allow him to train different ages, different types of populations in different settings. So I'm going to talk to him about how safety and preparedness intersect with mental health. Today we have a special guest. His name is Martin. I have him on the phone right now. How's it going? I sent you a few questions before the interview. Um, I know that those are just some guideline questions, but I realized that I didn't ask you to introduce yourself or really talk about, you know, who you are, where you're from, um, how you arrived there. So would you mind talking a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. Um, so I was, I was born and raised uh, on the east side of El Paso, and so it was a little bit of a rough neighborhood, which kind of does, um, you know, kind of tie into how it is that I got started in this business. Um, but, you know, it was uh, after September 11th, I wanted to join the military and serve my country. I wasn't old enough yet, so the second that I turned 18, I made that happen. Uh, I joined the United States Navy, hoping to be a Navy SEAL. But uh, that didn't quite work out due to some car accidents and things like that. But either way, I was an intelligence professional. And so I started off enlisted, um, did lots of deployments and everything, and then was later commissioned as an intelligence officer. Um, and so during that time, a lot of what I did was you know, collecting massive amounts of information, kind of going through it, seeing what's valid, what's not, um, and then sending people into harm's way. And then on the side of that, if you want, if you will, um, I did a lot of physical security. And so it was, you know, making sure buildings, structures, things of that sort, all met the required security uh, requirements to protect classified information. And then I also trained uh, personnel on how to um, perform certain functions and everything, and again, protecting themselves and the material. And so I did a lot of security work and did, you know, different team tactics, things of that sort. So. That, that's how I kind of arrived where I was. I was uh, unfortunately medically retired uh, in 2016. And so I, I started kind of trying to figure out what it was I was going to do. I had all these tools now and, and nothing to build. And so the, uh, the Orlando Pulse nightclub uh, shooting happened during my transition process. And I started, you know, reading some of the uh, news clips and, and realizing, you know, more of the story would have happened. Really, there was a lot of fatalities because people just didn't know how to respond. And so that kind of was a, it was mind-boggling to me because it's, it's things that I had seen and done and learned, you know, and, and been applying day, excuse me, daily for so long. But to the average American citizen, it's, it's completely foreign. And so I started talking to people around me and figuring out, you know, what I could do to help them, and that's basically where my company started. Wow, that's fascinating. So first of all, I want to say thank you for your service. I oh, Thank you for the support. Yeah, so I remember, um, well, so this guest right here, <laughs> I met in high school also. <laughs> uh, so last yeah. week's guest we, we went to high school with, I don't know if you remember her, uh, Vanessa. We went to, to high school with her, and then I also went to high okay. school with you. I do remember you being in ROTC because I was there for, I think, a year or a year and a half or something. Yeah. Um, but I had no idea that 9-11 inspired you to get into the into the military. Like, that was your deciding factor. That's awesome. Yeah. And I know that uh, your wife also went to our high school. That's right. And so... You've been I, since middle school, so... Really? Wow. Okay. I had maybe like a class or two with her. 
so that's so cool. I just want to give her a shout out, say hi. But anyway, so what you're saying is that you made this transition from leaving the military to kind of like civilian life. And then all these events were happening around the same time, specifically the Florida shooting, uh, the nightclub shooting. And then so you thought, hmm, how can I apply these skills that I learned in the military to either create a business, but not really create a business. It sounds like you didn't have that as the end goal. It sounds no. like you wanted to help people. Yeah, I actually started with my daughter's school and a couple other you know, friends and businesses, and it was just me talking to them. Um, and as I started reaching out to different organizations, trying to see how I could get them to help us, you know, help me accomplish this, I, I got red flags and no's, no's, no's all over the place. And so I got sick of it and said, okay, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to do it myself. Wow. Can you tell me a little bit about what you mean by the red flags that came up? Uh, you know, so because although I was former military, I, I wasn't a police officer. Uh, I wasn't a paramedic, per se. I wasn't all these things, and yet I had, you know, tons of certifications and everything from the military. And I saw that it just didn't equate. Um, it didn't translate into the civilian sector. And so because you know, I had all this experience, but it wasn't anything that, you know, would match what they required, uh, it just, I, I looked around and I found programs that, you know, I wrote letters and then did a whole bunch of things to, to get certified um, by organizations that normally wouldn't certify people. Was, there was a lot of work and a lot of process to get, you know, my certifications um, recognized in the civilian sector. That's so interesting. So they, it's almost like they expected you to be, I guess, the civilian type of like first responder, EMT, firefighter, right. yep. all that That's stuff. Exactly right. Okay, and then so because of that, they didn't see you, even though you had all these experiences and certifications in the military, they didn't recognize that as something that was, I don't know, I mean, legitimate or safe? Yeah, yeah, or... That's, that's the easiest way to describe it, yes. Okay, okay. So then it sounds like you went through some processes to be able to get certifications. Can you talk a little bit about what those are? Yeah, uh, so um, I went to the American Red Cross because that's who I was really familiar with, you know, performing the military and everything that they do for the military. And so I looked at different organizations. And for me, you know, my entire career was about quality. Anytime I got any kind of certification or anything, you know, I'm just I'm built that way where I have to go and, and get in the weeds. And if I'm going to get certified in something, then I, I expect to walk away actually knowing what I'm doing. And so as I started looking at different companies and everything, I'm not trying to bash anyone, but I noticed that the American Red Cross, the curriculum was just so robust and they offered so many different things, different programs that aligned with what I was trying to go with. And so that's why I chose them. And so, you know, the standard of teaching, you know, it, it's one thing to go through a class and just sit there, but it's, it's completely different to actually get hands on, you know, not with the mannequins, with the mannequins, but with each other and, and learn how to actually render aid to somebody um, for the self-defense portion that I teach, uh, I use the Cobra self-defense system, which is a law enforcement-based program. It's not martial arts. And so it's, it's about, you know, everyday survival kind of stuff, not sport, you know, tap out, anything like that. It, it's reality-based. And then for, uh, so I'm certified to teach a number of programs through Cobra, but I'm also certified through the Alice Training Institute. Uh, I've taken several courses with FEMA. Um, I mean, all kinds of different things, you know, just to kind of get some credibility in the civilian sector. When I talk to military people, they all know exactly what it is that, that I did and didn't do and everything. It's very easy to talk to them that way. But when it comes to the civilian sector, I, I really do have to 
present myself with certain certifications just so they can acknowledge me. I, you would think, right, like, oh, he's ex-military, he was intelligence, he has a lot of experience, and they would just kind yes, of accept that. Thought, yeah. yeah, but no, they're like, no, you have to have, like, this and that. But I guess, I don't know, do you, do you feel like maybe those extra trainings and credentials were worth it? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, like I say, it, it, it does translate very easily, and I think that's why I was able to do it so quickly was because this is very familiar territory for me. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know they're, they're all they're their own programs and they, they have their standards and, and absolutely I mean the, you got to hold to that standard and so it, it was frustrating that I, it took me so long just to get in the door but once I got in you know then then it was smooth sailing from there and so it, it's a constant you know I don't want to call it a battle but it is a constant issue that I have to, to come against and, and make people realize I'm not just some guy off the street that's trying to do cool things you know I'm actually capable uh, and knowledgeable in a lot of different areas. That is so amazing. You know what? I'm kind of a little bit of a stickler for credentials and stuff like that myself. I think it's because of my field. And so all of the certifications and all of the credentialing and all the organizational titles and things that you can get, um, I think those things really matter to me. (laughs) I don't mean to be picky, but... Yeah, but yeah. you'll have you know, plenty of organizations that can give you a certificate. It doesn't mean you actually know anything. And that's why I've had to be really careful about what kind of programs and everything that you know I, I choose because the weight that they carry or don't carry can really speak to, to somebody. Exactly. So looking at somebody like me or somebody who has a license or certification in general understands that it takes a lot to get those things done. And so right. I think it's appreciated by a certain type of person, but also um, I think in general, especially in the civilian sector, maybe not a lot of people will understand like how much it actually took to get all of that stuff done. Right. But um, in the end, at least, the people who appreciate it will appreciate it, I suppose. Can you talk a little bit about what else drove you or keeps you in this business? I've always been driven by, you know, I'm a very mission-oriented person. And for, for me, you know, being able to, to serve my country in some way, to serve others, is really where my heart is. And I realized, you know, that I couldn't serve in the military anymore. And so I had to figure something else out, another way to, to still be, you know, obviously gainfully employed, but to still contribute to my community. And that, you know, this mission of, you know, actually empowering people, it doesn't matter what their age is, but to empower them, to educate them, to be able to, to defend themselves and watch out for themselves, that, that is the goal. And so, you know, whatever I can do to make that happen, then I'm going to keep doing it until I can't anymore. I think not a lot of people know that things like this, like what you're doing, exist. It's almost shocking to me, given that we've had so many events that have been dangerous to the public and to individuals lately, that like there's not more awareness surrounding your profession. Um, So what I wonder sometimes, how do others perceive your business? It's, it's a hit or miss. They have, you have people that will be are completely proactive and very receptive to what I'm doing. Uh, you know, they'll look into me, look into the program that I teach and everything, and, and they're they're seeking out this training because, like you said, they they realize there are things out there that that are dangerous, and I want to be able to to function. Um, then you have the people that are kind of on the fence. There's there's a lot of you know just really bad bogus information when it comes to self defense all over the internet, 
and you know you have guys that you know they're trying to look cool and it's all it's such a garbage is really what it is but that's what people think when you say self-defense they either think my gun or they think this you know just ridiculous stuff that you see all over the internet and then you have the people that have you know what i call a, a false sense of security you know that'll never happen to me or I have my gun or my pepper spray or whatever, and so because I have this, nobody's ever going to mess with me. Or I'm a big guy, you know, nobody will ever mess with me, and it's just it's just not true. And so the first two options, you know, the people that are very proactive and those that are on the fence, those are usually the ones that, you know, I can talk to and at least have a conversation with. Um, the third option, it is a little more challenging, but I have had plenty of people that were very resistant at first, and then they came around and, and actually wanted the training. Um, unfortunately, you know, I, I get this training all, all day, all year long, doesn't matter what's going on, but unfortunately it's when certain incidents happen, um, that, you know, maybe hits a little bit closer to home than people would like. And that's when I get the spike in interest. They'll have people that will actually convert and take the training. And then you have the ones that forget about it until the next incident happens. And it's just, it's, it's sad to me that there are people that recognize there's a threat, but aren't willing to, to do something to, to better themselves or the ones that they love. And I think I see this in my profession as well, where people think that this stuff cannot happen to them. Um, right. For like, and you know that I work with kids who have been abused and stuff like that. And so sometimes families will be like, I can't believe this happened to me. We've never had any problems before or perceive themselves as possible victims. And so it sounds like what you're doing is bringing awareness, one, and two, I guess a sense of preparedness for something that could potentially happen in real life. You said something about how people react to shootings. So we hear about it and then like there's this spike in like sympathy and kind of like fear almost like, oh my God, this can happen to me. So then people react and they're like, okay, we should get some sort of training. So that way in case this does happen to us, we're prepared. The fact that people are reacting is what kind of concerns me. The, the number one go-to, and, and this is by far what I get the most phone calls about, is, you know, well, I want to get my concealed carry permit. And, and so that's, you know, they, they, a lot of people think that, you know, in order to stop a bad guy with a gun, you got to have a gun yourself. And, and that, is a, that is an option, uh, but that is not the only option. And, that's, and that is what I'm doing is I'm showing people you have multiple options to be able to protect yourself. Uh, you know, the mere presence of a weapon does not mean you're safe. And so during my, my courses and everything, you know, I, I sell pepper sprays and stun guns as well um, and, and different self-defense tools. And, and I show people how to use them and what it actually takes to employ it um, and how in a you know, realistic situation, if you are not training with this weapon in that manner, it's completely ineffective. Uh, and a lot of people, you know, they'll carry their, and you know, women will carry their gun in their purse. And so I show them how difficult it actually is to get it out of the purse and, and use it. Um, I'll also show them what introducing a weapon into a fight can actually look like. And so there's all these things that, you know, these, these myths, if you will, that I bust. And that's, that's what half of this is, is understanding, you know, this is reality-based. This is what it actually looks like. This is what it actually takes, you know, for you to do this. And so there are a lot of times also where, you know, if you're working or you're at a bar or certain places, you can't carry a weapon. And so I, I get people to, to pull away from, you know, just relying on that weapon because there are plenty of reasons you won't get to it so i show you different options that you have without the weapon and then we incorporate the weapon as well and so in the active shooter situation you know you may be at walmart and it's the one time you didn't carry your gun or your pepper spray or whatever right and now there's a guy either trying to mug you in the parking lot 
or a negative shooter situation happens inside the store, what are you going to do? And and that is where I come in and say, you know, no kidding, this is what survival in this moment looks like. This is what you can do to maximize your chances of surviving. Wow. I, I think it's almost a little scary to think of it that way, but it it's the reality, like you said. It's reality-based. Exactly. So sometimes I, I wonder, you know, when people are in your classes, you said that you get different responses. Like you have some people that are resistant at first, and then after that they kind of like jump on board and understand, okay, this is really important. I really need to know this stuff. Um, we talk about mental health on the show, and something that I'm interested in knowing is about how somebody who maybe has been a past victim of a crime or a past victim of any other type of assault would respond or has responded to your type of training? Those are actually the people that approach me. Um, Because something has happened to them, they either never want that to happen again, and that's their motivation, or they're sick of it. Um, Or, you know, whatever the case is, I I do have, whether it's, you know, moms bringing their kids that are getting bullied, uh, or women that have been mugged or assaulted, you know, whatever. And, And so I work with them. Um, and, and it's very, very, you know, calm and, and it's empowering. It's not, you know, threatening or anything. And, and I show them, you know, different techniques, different strategies and everything. But, but I always make sure when I, when, if I know this up front, I always, you know, make sure that they understand, like, we're going to take this at your pace. Um, and we are going to run scenarios. We are going to do these things. But if you're not comfortable doing it, I'm not going to force it on you. And that is definitely where, where I differ from some of these other instructors where they, you know, no, you're going to get through this. And they try and, you know, force you through it. And it can actually do a lot more damage. Um, especially if they don't perform the way they think they would or they shut down and now it's a repeat. And so, you know, I'm very, very sensitive to this kind of stuff. Um, I, I don't I don't force any of my students to participate in the scenarios unless they are actually mentally prepared to. And, and so it's, it's very, very um, non-invasive. But at the same time, you know, again, this is reality-based. And so if, if you're here to take this class, I'm going to show you these things. We don't have to run a full scenario. We don't have to actually go through them to the extent that I normally you know, uh, do right now if, if, if you're not comfortable with it, but I do want you to at least know that I can teach this to you, I can help you in this way, and more often than not, you know, by the time we run scenarios, they're, they're destroying me, I get all geared up and everything, and they are, you know, taking weapons out of my hands, they're throwing me on the floor, and they're just beating me up, and, and at the end of it, when we debrief, you know, they just feel so empowered, and, and there was one girl where I didn't know this at first, but we run an ATM scenario, and I held her up at uh, gunpoint at the ATM, and she turned around and took me down and would not stop hitting me. And my other instructor had to kind of pull her off. And I could tell she snapped. Yeah. And so after after that, I asked her, I was like, hey, you know, what happened? And she told me, well, I, I took this class because I got mugged at an ATM. <laughs> and so I, 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 oh. I kind of laughed about it afterwards. But I was like, you, you could have told me that. I wouldn't have run that scenario with you. She said, no, no, like, I, I'm happy to know that what I did in that moment. Because we talk about de-escalation and things of that sort as well. But she said, you know, it's good to know that I have other options. If I have to defend myself, I know I can. I think that's so amazing because it's funny. I think the conversation, or not even the conversation, it's just stuff that we're fed by the media, is like the solution or the potential solution is removing or giving arms or guns, right? And so the answers, it sounds like the the things that you teach are not so black and white. Like you said, like you could have a gun, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's your only means of survival at that moment. And um, I think it's really cool that you um, show the complexity of the scenarios and how to respond. 
uh, I guess, with all your clients and your students. One thing that we know about trauma and when people are traumatized by an event such as an assault, um, a rape or an incidence of abuse or even like an active shooter type of situation is that um, your fight or flight response gets activated, right? So I'm sure you know about that because that's probably oh, yeah. in your training, of course, right? Um, oh, yeah. Okay, so everybody has a fight, flight, or freeze response. Some people fight, some people run away, and some people freeze. I personally am a freezer, which is not necessarily the most helpful <laughs> form of, of response, but for whatever reason, that's just how my brain is. Um, so, for example, let's say something happens to me where I have to respond to survive. My life is threatened. It's definitely a traumatic event. And then I end up freezing. So what we know now, in treatment of trauma, if somebody gives us information about what they did during an event, gives us information about how their brain reacts during stressful situations in the present. So, for example, if I froze at gunpoint, right, in the past, and that was a traumatic event for me, for some reason my fight-flight-freeze response was to freeze, then later on, maybe a couple years later, maybe I'm like under some distress. It could be something little, it could be something that's not as dramatic as being held at gunpoint, but it could be something like having a lot of stress at work or having a lot of deadlines. My tendency, because of how I reacted in a past stressful event with freezing, my tendency is going to be to freeze in the future. So what what ends up happening is people who do something during their response matters. So if they fight or they run or they do something to enable their survival, they're less likely to be traumatized. Yeah, and so I thought that that literature was so important, and I think that what you're doing is you're actually preventing traumatization because not everybody gets yeah, that's exactly right. trauma, right? So I think it's so cool how they kind of go hand in hand, which is why I really wanted to interview you because I was like, this is so fascinating. Like he knows on some level about to, about the mental health part of survival and training and preparedness, but. I just think that it's so cool that you're preventing that even from the get-go. Um, you're equipping people. Yeah, I mean, like, like you said, you know, a lot of people don't even talk about the freeze portion. It's, all they know is, is fight or flight. So I was actually going to mention, you know, a lot of people actually freeze. And so, you know, we, we, we talk a whole lot about in the class about, you know, your, your adrenaline dump and, and how, you know, I'll have guys that, you know, they're superstar athletes and everything. And then we start running scenarios and we start, you know, going at it and within 30 seconds they are completely exhausted because they've never encountered anything like this this you know as, as in shape as they are that adrenaline dump comes in and they do not know how to respond because you know the, you know, the brain you know, brain is not a computer it doesn't you know this happens equals this response it's always trying to, to figure out what am i supposed to be doing what are my options and, and then you know that's in milliseconds you're making decisions but if you've never been in this kind of a position before then that's that, that, you know, the, the, the fight, the flight, or, or the freeze. We call it you know, lizard brain because you just you, you completely zone out and, and your body just starts doing things that it can relate to. And, and so that's where you know we come in and we, we set you in these scenarios and we talk about all these things beforehand. We get you mentally prepared so that when we run a scenario, 
you know, we can stop. The second that I see this is either too much or, or you aren't understanding what I'm doing, or then we, then we reset and, and we get people, you know, I tell people I'm going to sensitize you to a lot of things so that you're desensitized enough to respond. And when you start recognizing how your body, you know, your what, what your adrenaline dump looks like, some people, they start sweating profusely. Some people get really flushed. Some people have issues breathing. When you can recognize that and recognize, okay, my, this is my body responding to this and get your head back in the game, then you can respond. And that's exactly what we do is, is we put you in these, you know, situations that, that I hope and pray nobody ever has to actually deal with. But it's kind of like a roller coaster, right? The first time you take you on a roller coaster you're screaming your head off, don't know what's going on. You see a flash, and then you go back and you look hideous in the photo. And you're like, no, 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 that's what's going on again. <laughs> and by the second or the third time you've gone on the roller coaster, you know exactly where that camera's at, right? You're, you're primed and you're ready to go. It's the same thing. I, I put you through these scenarios so that you're accustomed to them and you can at least function somewhat as opposed to just freezing. I think that's a really great analogy, metaphor. I don't know what that actually is, but I think that that's so cool. It makes sense. It really does make sense. I might have to steal that and like <laughs> use, you. use that with clients. Thanks. Um, because yeah, I, I think that part of also therapy is having them. So therapy is almost kind of like reactionary, right? So like what you're doing yeah. is you're preventing these things from happening or preventing yeah, traumatization. Right, right. You're, you're being proactive versus reactive. So therapy, a lot of times, unfortunately, is like, oh my God, we're having all these symptoms. We don't know what to do with ourselves. Our last resort is therapy. I got to go talk to my shrink or I got to talk to somebody about right. this. So it, it's so much more difficult to address it after it's happened, obviously, because that stuff gets, you know, burned into your brain in a very intricate oh, yeah. way. And so, um, because we're doing work after the trauma, it's hard because we do have to get them to recall detail, uh, depending on the type of treatment that they're in. Most of the time, we have to get them to remember detail, uh, body sensations, feelings, things that they heard, things that they smell, things that they tasted, like anything. So then that way we can kind of heal the memory from like the inside out. But if you're preventing uh, these things, even if, let's say, their attempt to survive, they were trained by you, they attempted to survive, but maybe their attempt failed on some level, they're still going to be less likely to be traumatized. So working on the front end, on the proactive side, and then even if we did kind of like proactive and then the incident happens and then they go to therapy afterwards the prognosis for their treatment's going to be so much better. Okay, I think it's a good time for this question. So what level of safety preparedness should the average person engage in? What would you recommend? Well, I always recommend every single thing that I teach. But okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, 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 started, you know, I, I started this because, you know, one of the, the most alarming statistics that I've, that I've seen, actually there's, there's three of them, uh, but, but the first one is that only one in 10 American households is prepared to respond to an emergency. And that's anything from like a medical emergency to, you know, natural disaster, whatever, it doesn't matter. Only one in 10 American families is prepared. And that's, that's, that is, that is incredible. terrifying. That, that's, yeah, it's um, terrifying. If you put it into context, right, like on your street, think of how many houses there are. Exactly. So it's exactly. like a whole street. All your neighbors and neighbors, if, if you are the one neighbor that is prepared to handle something out of the entire neighborhood, you know, that, that's, that's it's terrible. And so then, so you, you look at that, uh, and then when you look more on, on the, the sexual assault side of the house, you know, you have 
you know, one in four girls will be molested or sexually assaulted before they turn 18. They have now one in six boys, depending on what organization you're talking about, but one in six boys will also suffer the same. And so you have those two very, very, very personal. Then you have one in 10 families that aren't prepared to handle any kind of emergency. And and what are we doing to, you know, to change it? And so that's exactly where, you know, I have programs for, for preschoolers. I have programs for kids, you know, six through 12, you know, both on the physical side and, you know, the mental side for, for self-defense and preparedness. Uh, and then I have a teen program. I do adult classes. I do women's only classes. I even have stuff for senior citizens. Um, and I can incorporate, you know, the, the medical side of it. So first aid CPR and how to actually help somebody that way. I have all the self-defense, everything, and then even moving into the active shooter, you know, some of the stuff we do talk about is gunshot wounds. And so it doesn't matter what your situation is, what your age is, you know, obviously it's, it's age appropriate at all times, but uh, I'm trying to get people to understand that it doesn't matter how old you are, whether you're three or 78, you can still do something. And, and depending on, you know, where they are at mentally, that's definitely how, how we approach, you know, what, what level of curriculum we're actually going to be teaching them. Um, but but I'm, I'm flexible and that you know sometimes i'll have a five-year-old that is very smart and i can start teaching them my six or twelve year old curriculum and they respond and they're just fine there's other times where a six-year-old just isn't mentally ready to handle some of this stuff and so we'll, we'll scale back and that's that's what i think parents because a lot of the training that i do it's mobile and so i do a lot of the family training sessions in home and so going back to that reality base right so here in home where do you have this? Where do you have that? If somebody were to come in, where would we go? And we, we run through entire scenarios as a family and we talk about different strategies. And then we'll do some, you know, first aid CPR type stuff if they request it. Uh, we'll do some home invasion scenarios. We'll, you know, set up Ron family rendezvous points, all these different things that they learn as a family. Okay, so what you're saying is that the average person should probably engage in some level of... I guess a variety of different types of training because yes. really anything could yes. happen at any time. That's exactly right. If you were to give some general recommendations, um, let's say somebody wanted to go through their house right after listening to this episode and they're like, Oh my God, do I actually, am I prepared? Like where am I going to hide if something happens? Or I don't even know if you're supposed to hide. Sorry about that. But um, <laughs> <laughs> like if somebody wanted to just go home and kind of check out their surroundings after listening to this, what are some things generally that you would recommend? Um, well, first and foremost, you know, what I call exit awareness. Understand, you know, if, I mean, like, let's say home invasion, let's say there's a fire, right? Let's say you have a two-story house or even a one-story, you know, what, what are your exits? And, and, and to include windows, you know, if you're on the second story and you have to get out, what are the best places for you to try and jump down and I can show people how to actually get out properly. But, you know, all these different little things. Um, if you know that the bathroom door upstairs doesn't lock, you know, now who else in the house knows that, you know, because if somebody were to come in, then now you have to know that don't go into the bathroom because it's not going to lock, right? right? And so just understanding your house, your layout, um, if you have any kind of weapon in the house, whether it's a gun or pepper spray or just, you know, the knives in the kitchen, again, understanding where they're at. Um, and, and who knows and who has access to them, I think is, is probably the most important part that a lot of families don't actually want to talk about. Most families that have guns in the home, uh, I found the kids don't know that the gun's there. Weapon is in the house. Part of the training is to get everybody on the same page. Um, and, and so when the adult says or does something, depending on the family, you know, that's, that's code, if you will, for the rest of the family to respond accordingly. 
And, and so we, we talk about this stuff, but you know, just walking around, understanding your exits, understanding what you have available. If you're not happy with that, then, then definitely ask yourself, you know, what, what level of either training or what tools am I willing to go buy and become proficient with, not just buying it? You know, does he no good to go buy a gun, go to the range once maybe, and then stick it in a safe for, for six months before you ever look at it again? There are plenty of things that you can do just to, you know, do you have an alarm system? Little things that if you're going to do it and be serious about it and, and be honest with yourself, you know, really, really look at it. And, and if it's going to cost some money, then maybe budgeting for it, obviously. But, but don't just sit here and rationalize and, and think, this would never happen to me. I live in a safe neighborhood. Or, you know, I don't go anywhere where there's bad people going to me because it can happen anywhere. Um, and it starts at home. You're making a decision at home to, to take your safety seriously. When you're training for something like this or you're preparing yourself for something like this, that um, kind of like how we talked about earlier, there is a sense of, I guess, vulnerability. Like, it really can happen to anybody. It really, really can. And I think a lot of people don't want to think about that. They, they're they kind of like, no, no. I don't think it's because they're like, no, it's not going to happen to me. Like, they're in total denial. I just think that people don't want to even fathom it because it's too painful. Right? Like, I completely agree. I completely agree. Yeah, like how could that how could that even happen to me? I don't want it to happen to me, and it's just it, that can be a really dangerous, I guess, recipe for um, victimization. What I would also like to know is if you have an opinion about um, the whole we should arm teachers situation. So we just had a shooting again in Florida. <laughs> And I don't know if you have an opinion about this or if you feel comfortable expressing your opinion about this, but I really kind of want to know, I guess from your standpoint, from your professional standpoint, what, you know, based on your career right now, um, what do you think of that? I don't really have an opinion as much as, as I have questions. Um, you know, litigation, legislation, all these things, you know, that, that's one thing. But again, I'm, I'm very much, you know, I focus on the critical window. So no kidding, when this happens what are you going to do and so if if you are a teacher um you know teachers are, are by law required to take care of their students and so if you have an armed teacher does that mean that if something happens that they now abandon their students and go hunt the shooter because if they do then then how does that you know actually help the students uh if the stance is to strictly have the gun in there so that if the shooter comes your way you can engage then I fall back to, well, why not just get them out of there instead of waiting for the shooter to come to you? You know, a lot of teachers are, are parents, they're, they're spouses. And so, you know, and a lot of them mentor these students. And so, you know, you're expecting them to, to in a split second, go from, you know, nurturing, caring, mentoring to all of a sudden law enforcement mode and, and hunt down and, and shoot this student or teacher or whatever it may be. And so, you know, they're re reality, right? You know, how are they actually, you know, how much training are they really going to get? Um, how proficient are they actually going to be with these tactics and, and these these guns and everything? Um, you know, NYPD, who we look at to be the best of the best, uh, they have proven statistically that in real life situations when things are happening, they're only shooting at about a 15, 10, 50% accuracy rate. And so these are law enforcement officers who have been trained and trained and trained, and they're shooting only at about 15% accuracy. And so now in a school setting where kids are running all over the place, how is this teacher not going to shoot, you know, other students? Or how do you know if there's 10 teachers that are armed 
who's the bad guy, who's the good guy, right? So there's all these things that if there's a solid plan in place and it works and it's a deterrent, then then I guess I'm okay with it, you know. But if if all these things haven't actually been discussed and and thought out, then I think it's it's far more of a liability than it is a help. It's it's a, it's a good idea. I understand that. Um, but you know, having one person, one SRO, if you will, for every 1,000 kids plus a handful of teachers, it still doesn't, one, stop people from actually doing it because, again, we see shootings all the time where there are SROs, there are armed guards, whatever, they're on the campus, and these things still happen. And so, you know, to, to expect a teacher to go from this role, and, and you know, teachers are, are, are underpaid, overworked as it is, and you're also going to put this on top of them. You will have some that will rise to the occasion, but the majority of them, this is this is not what they signed up for. This is not what they ever intended. Will they do it to protect the kids? Yes. But again, I, I just the programs that I teach, you know, we, we we teach so many other options besides a gun. And so if you if they bring them into the school and and that works, then that's awesome, right? You know, lives were saved. Um, but there's also lots of other things that we can be doing, other programs that have already been, you know, approved, accredited, whatever you want to call it, by. You know, local state governments, by the federal government, all these things, and I, I have found that to be far more effective because, you know, I liken SROs to, to lifeguards. If you go to a pool and there is one lifeguard for every 1,000 people swimming, does, does that actually make everybody safe? Can the lifeguard actually keep an eye on everybody, right? Likewise, if somebody starts drowning, are the people just going to sit there and yell at the lifeguard, hey, he's drowning, or are they likely to go and try and help this person, right? It's, it's the same thing in these school situations. If we have more people that are trained on how to respond and help each other while they wait for the SRO or the police to arrive, then we're just going to increase our chances of survival. That makes a lot of sense, and I like the, the lifeguard thing because it's true. Um, the, the, you also, I think, as an individual, have a responsibility that if you're going to enter a pool – you should probably know what you're doing on some level and, like, at least right. have some basic right. swimming skills. Not like, I'm just going to throw myself in here and you'll save me if I need it, right? You know, and that's very... Yep. It sounds like it's reactions to reactions and then there's going to be more reactions to those reactions. So instead of being prepared yep. and preventing these things from even happening in the first place, um, it sounds like, you know, arming teachers would probably be a really bad <laughs> idea but I really think that um your answer is well thought out because it's I really like it because you're not just you know what this is my opinion this is what I'm I'm thinking and this is what should be done it's actually like wait let's critically think about this (laughs) because that's what I deal with every day I deal with people who you know they have had this weapon on their hip for 30 years but have never had to actually draw the weapon and shoot instantly it's, it's never happened, and so when we actually put them in these scenarios, they don't perform the way that they think they're going to. And so I see firsthand, you know, on a continuous basis, that, that just because you think something is going to happen, unless you have actually physically done it, you know, we obviously say a thousand times is what you need to actually commit something to muscle memory. And so unless you've done something like that a thousand times, you may not respond the way you think you are. Yeah, and even then, like, I'm sure the NYPD has done it more than thousands of times in training camp and all kinds of stuff, and there's still right. only 10 or 15%. It's just too dynamic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's just too dynamic an environment. A moving target is far more difficult to hit, especially when you have chaos going around. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. There are so many other factors that play into this. The, the fact that, that I'm even that you're giving this opportunity to actually try and get this information out to people because that's that's what a lot of this is. is a lot of people just don't even know. Like you said, one of my profession, there are people like me that are doing this. 
Um, but but more importantly, they don't know that they have more options. A lot of people don't know, like in the school setting, that as of 2013, the federal government came out with official statements and everything saying, we no longer recommend a lockdown-only approach in schools. That was in 2013. You know, the program started officially in, in 2010, but by the time it was actually released and everything, it was 2013. And now we, here we are in 2018, and you still have hundreds and hundreds of schools who still only use lockdown because they've never heard of this new recommendation. And so awareness is, is, is the first part of it. You know, we, we have things available that people just don't know about. And so, you know, you give me this platform right now to actually be able to explain to people, you know, you have multiple options. I can show you what they are. If, if I'm not local to you, then I have a network of people that may be closer to you. You know, but, but like I said, the mission is to get people prepared, make them aware of what their options are, and then let them decide on, you know, on their own what they're going to do. But at least now they understand that they, they have other options besides what they've heard for the past 30 years. All right. How about we end with you giving some information about how to contact you? Okay, um, so, so my network can be everything. Can, you can come through me directly. And, and depending on what it is you're actually looking for is where I'll, I'll kind of find, you know, sort you to, to wherever you're going to go. Because there's just there's so many different concerns. And, you know, with, what's right for one person may not be right for the other. Um, so if you want to get in contact with me, you, know, you can email me at info at redteamsafety.com. You can go to our website, redteamsafety.com. Uh, I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram uh, under the Red Team Safety handle. You know, so so anyway, you know, you, you, if you want to reach out to me, please, by all means, do. And like I said, if I personally can't help you in some way, then I will definitely try and find somebody closer to you. Um, I also have, you know, online options if you want to get some training uh, that way that's more conducive to your schedule and things of that sort. But I just want to get people prepared. That is, that is the goal, and, and I will do whatever I have to to make sure that happens. Okay. Um, what I'll do also is I'll put a link... Um at the, at the bottom of each episode on the website that I have the podcast on, I have a small space for um, links and bios and stuff like that. So I will definitely put um, your link up there. I know that you sent me a logo also. So I'll, I'll put that up there. I think those are all the questions I had. So I just want to take a quick moment to thank you again for being on the podcast and for agreeing to be interviewed about such an important topic. Um, and Thank again, of course, anytime. And, um, yeah, if you ever want to come back and talk about something else, we can do that. Um, and yeah. say, you let me know and I'll, I'll make it happen. Awesome. And say hi to your wife for me. <laughs> I will tell her hello. Um, and I think that'll be the end of this interview. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Have a good one. This is Through the Eyes of a Therapist with Crystal Martinez Acosta. Thanks for listening.